in your Bibles. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 977. This screen is just slightly different from last week. It's different in, I'm going to say, two meaningful ways. Uh, you could pick your choice, and if you guess either one of the two, you would be right. The first way would be, I reversed the Jews and Gentiles. Last week, I put the Jews on the right side and Gentiles on the left. Kind of insignificant, but for my purposes today, uh, because I'm OCD and I know what the slide's coming up, it just fit better to switch those. So that's one change. The second change is, is a little more significant. If you're using a pew Bible, you're now on the second page of Ephesians. Now, you really didn't get a flip a page because... We've been on page 976 all this time, and right across on the right-hand page is 977, but it's still a change. We are making progress. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. This is a very potent and difficult text. I'm going to call it potent because there's kind of, I mean, we've already talked about last week the tension between Jews and Gentiles, the hostility, the misunderstanding, uh, the insults and the barbs that were traded back and forth between Jews and Gentiles. There was no appreciation, no love lost between the two groups. But this text, now that we're moving into the rest of chapter 2, it's potent because there's tension between the text of Scripture and the theology of Scripture. So that's why, before we really dive into the text of Scripture, today we're going to deal with really more the theology and how it relates to text. So really, today's kind of a topical message. We're not doing verse by verse. And I'm going to read why that, on one level, is not a good idea. And I'll have to ask for forgiveness if I go by what Walter Kaiser says. But uh, let's talk about theology. I don't know what that word means to you, the word theology, if it's... Uh, if it's a bad word, or uh, it seems like it's not a relational word. You know, we're talking about we're the sheep of his pasture. That's relationship. You know, we're called into relationship with the living God through Christ. And theology sometimes is given a label of stifling relationship, kind of a wet blanket on the relationship, this, this active, vibrant relationship you're to have between yourself and God. So the word theology itself, it's compound, theo meaning God, and then the second part, the logi part, a subject of study or interest. So you already have theology, whether you recognize it or not, the fact that you're here showing that you have some interest in God. And you've assembled here to sing certain songs, if you're a believer, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to look into his word, because you have an interest in God. That's, that is theology. Probably a little bit closer definition would be taking that first part, God, and putting it with logos, uh, a word or a discourse. Theology is a word or a discourse about God. Christ is theology impersonated. He is the Logos of the living God. He, he demonstrated the word of God to humanity, to his own people, in bodily form. That's theology. Let's move beyond this. If you were to add one adjective to theology, what word would you add? Now, an adjective is uh, which, what kind of, or how many. Is that right? Which, what kind of. So, I'm thinking uh, an adjective here. What kind of theology? If you had one adjective... Prior to theology, 
in word association, you don't have to shout it out. I'm going to show you my word because mine's the right answer. <laughs> There's lots of good words you could have. You could have good theology. That, that's an adjective, and it would be a good word. But when I think of theology, the word most of my life that I associate as an adjective to the word theology would be the word systematic theology. Theology? What? What are you talking about when you're talking about theology? We're talking about systematic theology, a system of theology. Systematic theology is a summarized and orderly arrangement of the Bible's key doctrines or subjects. So it's arranging key, key doctrines in the Bible, assembling them together. That's systematic theology. Back before I was married, probably in 1978 or 79, the first probably the first time I spent money on a Christian book myself when I was at Cedarville College, is I bought this systematic theology by Augustus Strong, a good Baptist. Uh, it's one volume, and the only reason why it could be one volume is because the print is so incredibly tiny on a lot of these pages. And I bought this, I was, you know, what, 19 or 20, and I bought it because I was really getting my money's worth. A big, thick, book like this was only $13 in 1978 or 79, and I got it, and I read some, but I didn't read very much because it was over my head. I really wasn't ready for Augustus Strong when I was 19 or 20 years old. So about a year later, my roommate and I, we went with an easier, though more expensive set, an eight-volume set by Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, eight volumes for like $70. We split the cost. It was a lot of money back in 79 or 80, but uh, we split the cost. I sense either stole his half or I bought him out. I really don't remember. But this was much more readable, though there were a lot more words to read. That's a systematic theology. It's an orderly arrangement of Bible doctrine. Now, the one I would recommend today, there's actually any number that I would recommend today. A really uh, a somewhat brief volume would be J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. I often, because I often don't have time to read an entire book in a week, but if I want to look up a topic or a doctrine in a very concise form, J.I. Packer's probably one of the first ones I go to. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce also has a nice one-volume kind of concise systematic theology. If you wanted something bigger, I remember... Uh, I recommended, or I probably got for, uh, like when Jeff Mudd was here, I got him Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Excellent Systematic Theology. Very easy to read, very thorough, and I agree with 95% of what he writes. Uh, so lots of good Systematic Theologies I could recommend. But, but Systematic Theology is not the only good word you could add to the word theology. In fact, it's really not meant to be the first word you add to systematic theology. So if we take it back to the Bible and start with the Bible, there are kind of four levels of theology that you could consider. And systematic is not the first one. The first level of understanding the Bible is called biblical theology, or also known as exegetical theology. In other words, you're looking at the text and you're mining from the text what that text says at that particular place and time. So it would be described as tracing the progress of God's revelation in Scripture. It's examining the individual parts. 
exegetical biblical theology is what we do verse by verse in Ephesians. We're looking at the individual parts, one by one, verse by verse. It's kind of like uh, putting it under a microscope. That's where good theology starts. It starts with the text. If you don't start with the text, you're jumping to the second level, which is not a good place to start. If you haven't had, I mean, it's like, uh, well, I was never good in math or science. Uh, but I understand in sciences you had to take the first level before you got to the second level. There was, you know, general biology, there was advanced biology or whatever all the other stuff was. I was lucky to make it through the general stuff. Uh, it was on a wing and a prayer that I made it through entry levels of math and science. I was great in algebra, but as soon as he got to geometry and theorems and all that kind of stuff, I was like, I was not my thing. But that's another story. After biblical theology comes systematic theology. Systematic theology is taking the parts that we discover down in exegetical theology, and it's putting those parts together and grouping them and in relationship. So in, in Ephesians, we're talking about grace. We're talking about faith. We're talking about the character of Christ. We're even talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about all these parts. Systematic theology says, well, God's grace is talked about in Romans. God's grace is talked about in the Old Testament. It's the hased, the loving kindness of the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit's talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's taking those individual parts and assembling them all together in a way that they're in relationship with one another. That's systematic theology, which follows biblical theology. After that comes historical theology, which is uh, what the church has done. You start with the individual parts, systematic, putting them together, and then the church uh, has a, a certain, well, basically they're creeds, confessions, and catechisms that assemble all of this together. The creeds are like a skeleton, most essential. You're really not a Christian if you can't agree with the Apostles' Creed. Like, I, you've invented a religion, but it's not Christianity. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only begotten Son, and on it goes. The Nicene Creed, they're like skeletons. The most basic essentials of what Christianity is all about. It's derived from biblical, the biblical text that's been assembled into this creed by the church that it proclaims. Now, a confession is, adds a lot of muscle to, those, to, those, to that skeleton. Uh, that's where some denominations and movements come in. That's where a lot of secondary doctrine comes in, where you can expect certain things to be taught at certain types of churches because they've got a confession. If you're a Presbyterian, a good Reformed Presbyterian, you believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're a Reformed Baptist, you have the Philadelphia Confession of Faith or, or the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Or the one I like is the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith because it's less precise. I like to have a little bit more liberty and accommodation for how different Christians may view different things all within the keeping of what uh, good Baptist theology is. Though Baptists aren't right all the time, just like the Presbyterians or the Methodists or we'll pick your group, they aren't right all the time. But in Baptist theology, one of the distinguishing features of a Baptist is they believe in baptism after a profession of faith. 
That's where, kind of where they get the name. We're Baptists. We believe you get baptized after you profess faith. We don't believe you get baptized as a baby into a covenant of faith. You get baptized after the fact. Well, that's not really essential to Christianity. The Presbyterians can be good Christians, and they have good reasons for believing what they do. But a Baptist confession of faith is going to have that distinguishing, distinguishing feature, as the Presbyterians have reasons for why they baptized infants. A catechism then kind of puts feet to this little body we have. It kind of tells you, what does that look like in everyday life? How do we apply this to living? What does it mean? Martin Luther goes through the Ten Commandments one by one. What does it mean you don't steal? Thou shalt not steal. What does it mean? Martin Luther puts it down. Here's what it means. It puts feet to the confession. How do you live it out when God says don't steal? How do you live it out that God says... uh, have no other gods before me, and don't make any images to represent me. After historical theology comes contemporary theology, or sometimes it's called practical theology, which is kind of like a catechism. It takes theology, it takes the teaching of Scripture, and kind of sets it in a more modern context, a cultural context. What does it mean that God has revealed himself as he has in Scripture? Revealed his character, his grace. He's revealed ourselves and our sin. What does it mean in a culture like ours? That's a little bit more of contemporary or practical theology. I'm not going to spend any time there. But that's kind of the sequence. It always starts down here. It always starts with the actual text of Scripture. So systematic theology is devoted to putting boundaries around doctrine, around what the Bible teaches, fences. So the the Baptists have their fences around what they believe about these topics, these doctrines, like Presbyterians, like Lutherans, like pick your group. They they have, you know, the Christian church. The Christian church, you know, one of their, their rallying cry in the restoration movement was, no doctrine but Christ. And then they... Uh, assemble a, a list of doctrines where you go to a Christian church, you can expect that they have these certain emphases. It's really the same thing. You can say you don't have it, but you do. It's, it's kind of like Paul in, in Corinth when uh, one of the first things he addresses in the Corinthian church, some say we're of Apollos. Some say we're of Paul. Some say we're of Peter. And then there's a group that says, oh, we're of Christ. And they're just as sectarian as the other groups. It's still a problem. Because they, they've assembled certain things you have to believe to fit in their group, which is secondary, not primary. It's not a creed, it's a confession. So, systematic theology puts up certain boundaries about what the Bible teaches, whereas biblical theology is engaged in the ongoing task of discovery. Do you see the tension? There's tension between, when I first came to this church in 94, um, I'd preached here a few times in pulpit supply, there was some interest, maybe me candidating, and we did a big Sunday night downstairs, and I remember saying, it was a question-answer time, and I remember saying in that Sunday night, I'm like, I'm not sure I'm that Baptist, because I knew there were certain boundaries at the church, here's... Here's what you probably expect our church to teach and believe. And, and I'm more about the task of discovery. I'm not here to teach what Baptists believe. I'm here to teach the Bible. And sometimes it's like, I knew it. That's exactly what Baptists tell me. 
But if you're a big B Baptist, there's going to be times you're like, what in the world? I thought this was Baptist. How could you say that? Well, I'm really more devoted to discovering the text than defining the boundary, than making sure the fences are all painted, intact, in shape, and the sheep are in the fold. And so I, I wasn't sure about the tension there, but it's worked out pretty well. We've been here all this time, and, and the people that didn't like it have long since moved on. But there's a tension there between the boundaries of systematic and, and the discovery of biblical. Whereas like, if we go, like I've said, well, no, I've said lots of times, but when, I, when I'm going into the text, I can't let my systematic interpret what the text says. But that's almost impossible. To some extent, that's impossible to do. Like, I can't help I've got biases. I do have a systematic theology. I've got lots of systematic theologies. I love my systematic theologies. They organize my thought and my mind. But at the end of the day, when I teach Ephesians, or whatever the text may be, I can't say, well, the text can't say that because my fence is here. And the sheep will get out of the fold. It's more about being loyal to the text than your boundaries or your, your fences, your systematic. Systematic theology tends to teach topically because they're maintaining the fences. Here's what we believe. You know, I, I mean, um, I want to be careful what I say. Uh, and that sounds wrong. I just want to be careful about using God's name. Uh, I was going to... At any rate, uh, the general, we're part of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. They have a state representative. He, he's, he's a representative for Illinois and Missouri. I like him quite well. He's done the best job in all the years I've been in garb. He's clearly my favorite. He's got a high view of scripture. One of the things he does, like you would expect, or like I expect anyway, is he, he will preach, he will fill in for any of the churches in the area, any of the Ilmo ch uh, garb churches, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, he'll fill in. One of his topics is why we're Baptist. Honestly, I don't care. Like, I'm not interested in why we're Baptist. I want to know what the text says. I don't want to know what our fences say we say. I want to know what the text says. So I've never scheduled that topic. And if you're like me, you can thank me. And if you're like, I want to know why we're Baptist, then then you should, I should schedule him, I guess. But at any rate, systematic theology tends to teach topics. It's, I mean, I don't, there's, uh, topical preaching isn't entirely bad, but it's kind of based on the assumption that the Word of God contains, or the Bible contains the Word of God, rather than the Bible is the Word of God. So, the Bible is the Word of God, is you're exposing what's in the text, and you go to the text to find out what does the text say. Systematic says, well, it's in there somewhere. We've, we've put it in different fences, different sh categories, and we'll tell you what it says. So topical isn't entirely bad. It has a place, but it's not the foundation of what Scripture is built on. It should be built, built on exposing the text for what it is in this moment, whether you like it or not. Whether it's comfortable or not, it's what the text says. And when you go verse by verse for all these years, you've got to deal with texts that 
for a lot of people, they, they would never believe those texts are in Scripture. Because when you're choosing topically, you don't deal with them. They're uncomfortable. Uh, it's not what the denom denomination is comfortable with or wants to deal with. Walter Kaiser, uh, for many, many years, is associated, was associated, probably still is on some level, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Deerfield. Um, he turns 90 next year. I don't know when his birthday is. He turns 89 sometime this year. He turns 90 next year. He's very much devoted to biblical theology, exegetical theology. He wrote a book called Toward an Exegetical Theology. He's calling the church. And this is one thing that made Trinity really a desirable school, and they attracted some very desirable professors, is he was calling the church to be less committed to their systematic theology and more committed to what the Bible says and let it and discover what it says and change your systematic based upon what it says. So he opens the book with these words. This is the uh, first chapter. Actually, it's in his introduction. He writes, To be sure, the church has had more than her rightful share of meditations or topical sermons, which are more or less loosely connected with a biblical phrase, clause, sentence, verse, or scattered assortment thereof. Skipping ahead. Those sermons whose alleged strength is that they speak to contemporary issues, needs, and aspirations, often exhibit the weakness of a subjective approach. In the hands of many practitioners, the biblical text has been of no real help either in clarifying the questions posed by modern man or in offering solutions. In other words, if all you're devoted to is the Bible, what if people aren't interested in the Bible? Well, assemble things that they are interested in and you'll get people to come. And he's like, why would you do that? The Bible's the word of God. This is what changes lives, not somebody's assembly of texts. He finishes. So strong is this writer's aversion to the methodological abuse he has repeatedly witnessed, especially in topical message, messages, that he has been advising his students for some years now to preach a topical sermon only once every five years and then immediately to repent and ask God's forgiveness. I like Walter Kaiser. But who I like even more than Walter Kaiser Jr. would be uh, Dr. Greer. Dr. Greer was at Cedarville College when I first went there back in the day, and then pretty quickly he moved on to uh, what's now Cornerstone University up in Grand Rapids. He was the dean of the seminary. I think he might have been academic dean. He's highly credentialed. He died in 2013, which is hard to believe because it seems like just yesterday I read about it when he died. But uh, he taught philosophy. He had degrees in, in epistemology, knowledge. Uh, he had, a, I think, a degree in systematic theology. I mean, he's highly credentialed in a Baptist tradition, but he's, he recognized somewhere along the line, and maybe it's a lot earlier than I imagined, but he recognized somewhere along the line that we can't be so committed to our systematic theology that it becomes the lens through which we see all of Scripture. You've got to let Scripture speak for itself. Now, I'm going to play a short audio clip. It's no more than two minutes. It's a little difficult to maybe get all the particulars, but you'll get the gist of it. What he's saying is, don't let your organizing thought, don't let your systematic theology determine what the text says. Let the text speak. Uh, one of my stories that I've heard Dr. Greer say 
because he's really shaped so much of my thinking. But he said once he was speaking somewhere, and at the end of his lecture, a woman, or maybe a man, I don't remember who came up, and said, you know, I sent my child to, I think it was a Cedarville at the time, I sent my child to Cedarville, and they got a C in your class, and I really let them have it, that all they got was a C. And then the parents said, I've listened to you for an hour, and I haven't understood a word you said. I'm going to go back and apologize to my child. <laughs> so you may not get the full, full thing of what Greer's saying, but you'll get the essence of it, and it's spot on. Any viewpoint that views things under certain organizing structures, covenant theology, right? Dispensational theology, where we simply get the pattern and then we go to the text to find support, is backwards. Sorry? We must start with a canonical organizing principle of Scripture. The answer to my question, what principle did the Holy Spirit use, is so obvious you'll kick yourself if you can't think of it. It's history. Systematic theology is a human activity prone to error, and in constant need of checking. There's only one thing inerrant. It's the text, not your theological reconstructions. And if we get so set that we have everything done, and theology is no longer an ongoing task we're engaged in in the midst of the culture, then all we become are reciters. We don't become active participants, and primarily theology is an activity you do. Did you preach Sunday? You did theology. The question isn't, did you do it? The question is, did you do it well? Right? Send me a tape. I'll help to answer that for you. <laughs> Every time you witness, you do theology. Theology isn't something in a book. The guy who wrote the book did theology while he wrote it. And I can sit and read it and judge it. Theology is primarily activity. We all engage in it. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, where we will actually launch into next week, is a, there's a certain tension between the text of Scripture and a lot of people's theology, including mine. There's things that don't fit neatly in that text with my theology. And so I've got to be as honest as I can in exposing what the text says and adjusting whatever structure I think I have. Things like when Paul says Christ is abolishing the law of commandments, that he might create in himself one new man. Well, what does that mean? And it may seem unclear now. Next week it'll seem more unclear. But on one hand, maybe it won't. I'll try to, I'll try to explain it in a little bit. Our, our devotion will be to the text of Scripture, not some organizing principle. What does the text say, and why might that be difficult? Another way to look at this, and I'm going to do this really briefly. I'm out of time or within minutes is a noetic structure. Noetic, noetic, the word noetic doesn't refer to Noah and his flood. Noetic refers to the Greek word for mind is noose. So it's the structure of the mind. Your mind, although the older you get, the less structure it has, but your mind has some degree of structure. 
And it's like a spider web, where in the middle of that noetic structure are the things that are most important that determine how you think about the things on the periphery. So in the middle is what Greer would call the properly basic beliefs. These are certain presuppositions you have. You start there. Here's the big, the big way to understand it is, you don't argue toward these beliefs, you argue from these beliefs. You presuppose that they're true. Because you've accepted them or received them as true, you argue from them, not to them. So, properly basic beliefs. What do you put in the middle? You can decide for yourself. In our culture, you put yourself in the middle. You determine who you are. You determine how everybody should relate to you. You determine what kind of person you are, what your interests are. You are your own God. But if I'm reading the Bible correctly, at the center should be God. I believe God is. I don't try to prove God. I can't prove God, nor, do I, nor am I called to prove God. I start with God exists. He demonstrates his character in his creation, in his church, in his word, but I don't argue toward God. I argue from God. With that as a presupposition, God is self-existent, infinite, and personal. God has revealed himself in forms adaptable to us. He's revealed himself in creation in a way that we can understand something of the character of God, because he is. In Scripture, I look at Scripture, he has revealed himself in Scripture. It's adaptable to me by his Spirit. And I understand I don't argue towards Scripture. I don't try to prove the Bible's true. I start with it being true. Greer was so hammered on this. If there's a standard that proves the Bible's true, what's the real standard? Something's higher than the Bible, if that could be the case. I start with Scripture. It is inspired by God. I don't argue for that. I argue from that. So, those are my properly basic beliefs. Beyond that, you've got different doctrines. Some are, are more near and dear. They're more primary. Some are more secondary. You've got your convictions. You've got your persuasions. It's all, for me, it's, it ought to be all stemmed around this idea that God is in the center and he defines what is true in all of life. If I try to flesh that out, those persuasions, convictions, and doctrines, which may be unclear to you, it'd be things like Christ and the Holy Spirit. I argue toward those things from Scripture. I argue toward those things. They're primary beliefs. Salvation, a, a very primary belief, though there can be some difference. There are Christians that believe you can lose your salvation. I believe Scripture teaches God's grace sustains and keeps. But those Christians that believe you can lose your salvation are still in the kingdom of God. Saved by grace, they just don't have the joy of celebrating a grace that keeps. Justice is based upon my properly basic... What does the church look like? The sciences? You can't understand science apart from God. Pain and suffering? How do you understand pain and suffering? I start with what God says. Godliness. What does godliness look like as a Christian? What does eschatology look like? That is the doctrine of final things. Christ coming back. A kingdom. New heaven and new earth. There's a lot of diversity. That's further out. That's secondary. I'm not going to quibble with you over the timing of Christ's coming. That was a problem with RHMA and myself. That was a problem with Marv Rosenthal when he was chairman of Friends of Israel. 
He got the timing of the rapture wrong so far as they were concerned. And so he was ousted. He started a new ministry. I don't think those are that important. It doesn't mean everybody's right. Everybody could be wrong. Or one person may be right. But I'm not going to argue and quibble over those things. It's not a properly basic belief. Your idea of government. All of this, for everybody here, is shaped by whatever you have in the middle of that noetic structure. I cannot fully or rightly understand anything apart from God's word and his spirit, and to a lesser degree apart from his church. If you think that you by yourself can interpret God's special revelation recorded in scripture apart from the church, I don't know how to say it nicely, but you're wrong. The church hasn't got it wrong for all these long centuries until you came along or until I came along. I need the church to help define the boundaries. Now, they're not the end all of the whole thing, okay? The church can be wrong. I'm not arguing for that, but I do need the church to help me understand rightly scripture. But it starts with God's word and it starts with his spirit. If I were to give you a simple example, what do I believe about humanity? I believe that all people are, by, are sinners by nature and by choice. How do I know that? God revealed it in his word. Now, we demonstrate it as well. But I know it to be true because God revealed it in his world. We are sinners by nature and by choice. God said so. If I were to say, well, what should I believe about the earth and the world in which we live? I start with my properly basic belief because if, if I don't start with God, I'm going to misunderstand whatever I see out in the world. Geological structures, the diversity of life, pains and sorrows. I start with God created because he revealed it in his word. He created all that is in existence. He sustains it by his power. And now the world is groaning under the burden and the curse of sin. So that everything you see out in the world right now is under the curse of sin. You can't rightly understand biology without recognizing it's burdened by sin. Because God's word says so. Greer used to say, you know, you have never seen God's earth soil like God created it. You, we have good soil in central Illinois. You scoop up that soil. It's not like... Uh, a lot, it's not like the soil in Albuquerque, I'll tell you that. It's rich, it's dark, it's black, it's cursed. You've never seen soil apart from the curse. But I've got to quit. Uh, I could go on because Greer is so fascinating, but that's enough for one week. Next week we'll actually go back into the text. Uh, this is just some structure to get into the text. Are there any comments and questions that I can... Cindy. Doctrines. Doctrines. Just some doctrines are primary, some are secondary. The primary doctrines would be what the church calls the creeds. You know, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Those are essential doctrines. Denominational doctrines include essentials, but they also include secondary doctrines. Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.